0: Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this. This is the very word of God Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for his blessing now upon the ministry of his word. Father, as we come to this passage of scripture, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be our guide, will be our teacher, and that you'll cause these words to go forth, not in word only, but also in power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I still remember my high school physics teacher, and I remember how at the very beginning of my senior year, he did something uh, to help prepare us all for college. He knew the majority of us in that class were probably intending to go to college. And he wanted to help us get ready. But he did it in a way that we didn't expect. I may have told this story before. I can't remember. But um, Mr. Henry, that was his name. And uh, first week of class, he gave an assignment and he told us when it was due. It was due in, uh, later on in that grading period, maybe five or six weeks later. So he told us the assignment, he told us when it was due, and then he didn't say a word about it again. The next time we heard anything about that assignment was the due date, and as we came in and he was taking role, he said, okay, turn in your whatever it was. And most of us, most of us were like, what? What are you talking about? And then we remembered but he hadn't said anything. He collected the assignment and most of us failed it because most of us hadn't done it. Now, was, uh, was that unfair of him? No, not in the least. But most teachers remind their students about the assignments that are coming up. They warn them, hey, don't forget about this. It's due next week. But uh, suffice it to say, we, we learned a lesson which he taught very effectively. Well, the book of Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord that's coming. It's about God's judgments that are on the way. And God, like a gracious teacher, continually reminds people, that the day is coming. He continually warns. And that's what we see in this text. Yet another warning about that coming great day. And these eight verses teach us that the Lord God judges the nations with righteous judgment. As if there was any doubt about that. But they make it clear yet again, the Lord God judges the nations with righteous judgment. There are two points I'd like to bring out of this text tonight. The first is that God's people have been unfaithful to the covenant, uh, particularly God's people in the days of Zephaniah. And that's the point of verses 1 through through 4. And then in verses 5 through 6, we see that God is perfectly just to bring judgment upon the nations. There is no injustice with him. (coughs) So first of all, God's people have been unfaithful to the covenant. That's the indictment that he brings here in this passage. And he speaks to a city. God, through the prophet, speaks to a city. This rebellious and defiled, oppressing city. And the identification of the city is not clear at the beginning. Because he doesn't name the city at the beginning. Now, the verses immediately preceding the end of chapter 2, they're talking very clearly about Nineveh. And if we proceed from chapter 2 directly into chapter 3, it would be natural for most hearers to think he's still talking about Nineveh when he speaks of a rebellious city, a city that's defiled, a city that's oppressive. But what Zephaniah is doing here, what the Holy Spirit is doing through Zephaniah is using a rhetorical device a rhetorical device by pronouncing judgment on pagan lands and then all of a sudden the hearers realize that the emphasis and the focus has shifted and the prophet is no longer condemning pagan countries or pagan cities, he's condemning the, them. He's condemning the people of God, the covenant people. It's like, it's like we've seen this before in the prophets. You remember for instance, uh, back in Amos chapter 1, God says, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he goes on to list their transgressions. Verse 8, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And you can imagine the Israelites listening and hearing the prophet decry these foreign cities, these foreign lands. And when the prophet says, God's not going to revoke the punishment, they would cheer and say, yes, the Lord is going to judge our enemies. And then the prophet all of a sudden says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And you can imagine the people saying, wait, what? You got something wrong there. God's supposed to judge our enemies. But the prophet pronounces judgment of God upon the surrounding nations. And then when he comes and he focuses his oracle of judgment on the covenant people, they have to confess, they have to realize that they're every bit as worthy of that judgment as the surrounding nations. And that's what's at work here. In Zephaniah chapter 2, God had been pronouncing his determined judgment against Nineveh and against the Assyrians and then suddenly the hearers perceive that the focus has turned to them. And so the result of that is they're more poignantly confronted with God's justice against them. And the rebellious, the defiled, the oppressing city is none other than Jerusalem. Jerusalem And the people of Judah are shown, particularly in verse 1 and 2, that they are completely opposite of their calling. When God brought His people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and when He called them His own, placed His name upon them, He called them to be holy, and yet they were defiled. He called them to obedience, and yet... Generation after generation, they were rebellious. Everything that the Lord God had called Israel to be and to do, they refused to be and do. It says, she listens to no voice. God had called His people to hear. And in fact, that well-known passage from Deuteronomy that Jesus cites in the New Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That, pes- that passage uh, by the Jews is known as the Shema, based on the, uh, the first Hebrew word in the passage. It's the, it's the um, imperative word, to hear. God calls His people to listen to Him, to hear. And yet, the text says, She, which is a personification of Jerusalem and of, of Judah, She listens to no voice. God calls His people to trust in them, in Him. But the text says they do not trust the Lord. And if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, you know quite well that they would put their trust in almost anything else except the Lord. They would trust in horses. They would trust in chariots. They would trust in alliances with other countries, but not the Lord. God calls His people to draw near to Him. And at the end of verse 2, it says she does not draw near to her God. And we see, to make matters worse, that all of Israel's leaders, all of the officers, all the people in positions of authority in Israel, in Judah, were derelict in their duty. It speaks of the rulers of the people, the officials, the judges, and it describes them as men of violence, men of greed. It speaks of the prophets. And it says the prophets are fickle, they're treacherous. And it speaks of the priests, the very priests of God and of the temple in Jerusalem. They profaned the holy things. And the priests were the ones that were supposed to teach people God's law. They were supposed to be the examples to everyone of holiness and yet they were profane. And they were supposed to be the ones who would teach God's law to God's people and teach them to walk in his ways and they were doing violence to the law. They were violating it themselves and distorting it. And so you see, they'd made a travesty of each of those three consecrated offices among the people of God. Who? Who? amongst God's people were to be anointed. Well, you would anoint a king, you would anoint a prophet, and you would anoint a priest. And all these three, and those who hold those offices in the land, they'd made a travesty of them. God's covenant with His people was that He would be a God to them and they would be His people. And He called His covenant people to be just. He called them to be a light to the nations to be different, and to be holy. God's people had done none of these things. Quite the opposite. In fact, they were egregious, inveterate covenant breakers. God's people had not been faithful to the covenant. Which brings us to our second point. God is perfectly just to bring judgment on the earth. Perfectly just to judge his covenant people for their covenant infidelity, and certainly perfectly just to judge all the nations. Now, God, as I'm sure you know, is not bound to justify his actions to us. There's no, there's no need for him to justify himself or his actions. But in a way, that's what verses 5 through 8 do. They prove the justice of God god's people have been treacherous, but God is gloriously just and these verses show the lord's righteousness, they show the ju- his justice and the justice justness of his judgments on the basis of two things. Now, scriptures even tell us that his God's justice reaches to the heavens. There are many, many ways we could illustrate and prove the justice of God, but there are two in this text. And on the basis of these two things, God shows and proves his righteousness. First of all, his character. We see that in verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous, he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. So the text tells us that he's righteous. He does no injustice. Meaning, among other things, that God isn't capricious. He doesn't have one standard one day and then just change his mind the next. He's constant. There's no hypocrisy in him. And speaking of his constancy, he's faithful. You know that a beautiful passage that we all love from Lamentations 3 that talk about His mercies being new every morning. We see shades of that here where it says, Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. And God's unchanging. He's immutable. His justice never wavers in the least. And so, frequently in the Scriptures, He's described as our rock. Because the the image there that that Scripture portrays is God is steadfast. He's solid. He's unchanging. That's why His name is I Am. He's the only creature that can say I Am. His standards don't change because He doesn't change. And so, God is perfect in righteousness, and he will judge with perfect righteousness. And that's what he speaks of in verse 6 when he says, I've cut off nations. He's destroyed their fortresses. He's destroyed their cities. And he was, he's just anytime he acts in that way. <clears throat> so he's just on the basis of his character who he is, but he's also just on the basis of his grace. Look at verse 7 with me again, because here in verse 7, God makes a gracious plea. And it, it should stand out to us because of all the other judgments that are pronounced in the context here. And in the midst of it all, verse 7, God says, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Do you hear the grace in that verse? God is warning of judgment. Judgment that will come. But He's extending the olive branch to His rebellious people and saying, accept correction. Fear me. And then these things won't come upon you. He's lovingly, patiently, mercifully extending grace. Grace. And this is just another example as if we've mentioned as we go through the prophets that when God gives indictments when he, when he condemns our sins when He warns us His indictments and His warnings are gracious. They're merciful. We don't like to hear them and they sound harsh to us. But every time He warns He's beckoning us to repent. And that's the case here. You know, God would have been perfectly just to destroy the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, wouldn't he? He had already brought them out of the land of Egypt. He'd brought them out of a house of bondage. He'd graciously led them through the wilderness. He was feeding them. He was providing all their needs. He was protecting them. And he brought them to the holy mountain. And he, with his own voice, spoke his law to his people. They heard his voice. One of the commandments that he gave them was, don't make a graven image. Then he sends Moses up the mountain to receive his law on the tablets of stone. And just in those days when Moses was on the mountain, what did they do? They made a graven image. Blatant violation of God's law. It wasn't just that there was heart sin or idolatry in their hearts. They made an idol when they had only weeks ago, perhaps, heard the voice of God thunder from Sinai saying, you shall make no graven image of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath. And if God had destroyed them that day, He would have been perfectly just to do so. But he didn't. In fact, he bore with these people between the time of Moses and the time Zephaniah was prophesying almost a millennium. 900 years in round figures. 900 years he bore with the people heaven and a new earth because the former heaven and earth had passed away. see, God's wrath is against Jerusalem and the world. God's wrath is against Jews and Gentiles. And so as the perspective shifts from just Jerusalem and zooms out to the whole earth, the perspective also shifts from temporal judgments, judgments in space and time during this present age, to the last day. And as we wrap up, I want to bring your attention to a couple of New Testament texts. Two in particular, there are others, but these two develop the theme that Zephaniah has given us here in this text, but at the same time, they also, uh, they're also hearkening back to Zephaniah as the basis for the truths that they proclaim. The first is from the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he gives a description of the end of the world a description of the very thing that Zephaniah speaks of in verse 8 of our text. In 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 6, Peter wrote, The world that then existed, speaking of the world in the days of Noah, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but the heavens and earth that now exist, in in other words, the ones in which we now live, this present earth, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. And then if you jump down to verse 10, he goes on to say, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Can you imagine every star in the universe suddenly going supernova all at once? Including our own sun. So that's Peter's description of the end of the world. But then we have the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, his own words regarding regarding the final judgment. (laughs) Matthew 25, beginning in in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And what did it say in Zephaniah 3.8? My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation. The Lord will gather the nations. He will assemble kingdoms, and He will bring them to justice. And He will do this through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again, as we testify, for this very purpose. And unlike my high school physics teacher, God warns us of this again and again and again. He doesn't have to, but He does. One thing that this text shows us very clearly is that God's covenant people of the Old Testament had failed at every point of their duty. Question. Have you done any better? Romans chapter 13 says the commandments of God are summed up in this one command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Honestly, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength? He has shown you what is good. Have you done it? Have you done justice? Have you loved mercy? Walked humbly with Him? We can read these verses in Zephaniah and we can shake our heads at this damning report that's given about Israel. But if we examine ourselves honestly, it's clear that we're the same. The report about us is no better. And that shows us how desperately we need a Savior. And it should make us ever so thankful that God has provided a Savior. Just a few closing points of application. <laughs> First, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Be sure of that. And let the fact that the, day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is coming motivate you. Let it motivate you to live a holy life, to seek after holiness. Let the knowledge of the coming day of the Lord motivate you to make wise and godly choices. Let it motivate you to share the gospel with others because they will face the day. You don't want them to face it without Christ. Secondly, this passage teaches us that we should praise God for His patience. Praise Him for His grace. It doesn't seem to us as if he was very patient or gracious towards Nadab and Abihu, does it? Those are the two sons of Aaron, his two oldest sons. And as sons of the high priest, it was their duty, their privilege, to burn incense before the Lord. Well, Nadab and Abihu decided, well, we're going to offer some special incense. They offered incense other than what God had commanded. And without warning... God caused fire to come out and consume them. He destroyed Nadab and Abihu. And some who would dare to criticize God would say, well, that was awfully harsh of him. Why didn't he give them a second chance? Why didn't he warn them? We could call that and other incidents like it, we could call them signal judgments. The flood, I think of as a signal judgment. The destruction of the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and the others, that was a signal judgment. The one with Nadab and Abihu that came seemingly with no warning. But God had made his will clear. But here's the thing, when it comes to God's grace and his patience, for every signal judgment of which we read, every signal judgment that God gives in history, he holds back thousands of others. Was there any phase in the life of Israel where some high priest was faithful enough that God shouldn't have devoured him in the course of his duties? There wasn't. Praise God for His patience and His grace. And then, final application. This passage teaches us that we should love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ perfectly executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We've read of wicked and failed prophets priests and kings in this text but jesus is our prophet priest and king he executes those offices perfectly and he does so all in our behalf and he does it as our redeemer you see jesus as the perfect prophet could simply declare to us our sins and then leave us in them but he declares to us the way of god for our salvation Jesus, as our perfect priest, could examine us and declare us unclean and cast us out. But what does he do? He says, you need a sacrifice for sin, and I'm going to be that sacrifice. I'm going to offer myself up as a sacrifice for your sins, and after I rise, I'm going to live forever to make intercession for you. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus Christ as our king would be a perfectly just king to condemn us for our rebellion and banish us. But what does he do? He subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us. And he conquers all of his and our enemies. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God judges the nations. And he always judges with righteous judgment. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is able to be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ our Savior. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. O Lord, help us to live in the light of the coming day. We pray that your word would dwell richly in us and that knowing that the day is coming... And even in the confidence that we have by grace through faith in Christ that we would endeavor to live as becomes your followers and that we'd lead others to him as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.